Welcome to Ivy League Murders, where we deep dive on cases related to academia. My name is Sarah Elkhorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. My name is Laura Rodriguez-McDonald. I'm a University of Miami grad, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Laura and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We do share a mutual passion for crime solving, and we both grew up in Cambridge, steps away from Harvard University. In Ivy League Murders, we discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. Okay, so let's begin. So this week on Ivy League Murders, we have UPenn's Ira Einhorn, The Unicorn's Secret. You couldn't live in Philadelphia during the 70s and not know Ira Einhorn. He was simply Ira, a talisman for the counterculture. Wild-haired, bearded, with mesmerizing Rasputin blue eyes, Ira was equal parts hippie agitator, guru, intellectual, and canny businessman. All that met Ira were drawn to him. He'd get you into his wavelength, man. As Ira lunched with CEOs and espoused peace and love, he was keeping a horrifying secret. Hence the title of Stephen Levy's book, The Unicorn's Secret. Stephen Levy is the editor and writer for Wired Magazine. He was previously the senior editor at Newsweek. He has also written for Harper's, New York Times Magazine, The New Yorker, among others, and is the author of several books. Stephen, we are so pleased and honored to have you on Ivy League Murders. How are you this morning? I'm doing great. Toughing it out. And one of the lucky ones, still have my job and up here in Berkshire County, Massachusetts. So oh, you're uh, in Berkshire. I, I was going to say your background doesn't look very Manhattan <laughs> back there. No, no, no. We, we, we decamped the summer to our place up here. We, we've been have, had this place for 30 years. And, Beautiful. Uh, yeah, it's good to have this year. And Thank you for having me here. Pleasure. And so we were thinking, yeah, we have a little, this is a little off topic, but actually before we discuss Ira, we have kind of a uh, brain fascination here because we did a whole episode on Cornell and they have a brain collection at Cornell. So we wanted to ask you a little about your rediscovery, or just so our listeners know, you rediscovered Einstein's brain. So maybe you could tell our listeners about that. Sure. The first um, like real job I had um, in journalism was working for a regional magazine in New Jersey. And one day my editor said to me, I want you to find Einstein's brain. I mean, that was missing. <laughs> okay, <laughs> no problem. We'll yeah, get right on that. <laughs> assignment. Turned out the magazine was based in Princeton. You know, there's no Ivy League connection there, right? The 23 years from the time he told me to go find it, 23 years before Einstein had died in Princeton and the brain was supposed to be preserved for study, and my editor had this curiosity about it. What happened to it? He never heard anything about it. And he looked into it and it seemed to have been lost to the sands of time. And he thought it'd be a good story for me to pursue. So I, I found it. It took me a, a few weeks and I wound up going to Wichita, Kansas, where I found Einstein's brain in like a big lab jar. And where is it now? My discovering it or rediscovering it led to a weird odyssey of the brain because once it became public, there was a lot of interest. The person who had it had kept it a secret and he was supposed to do a study. He never did. And the publicity 
it became something of renown and wound up going different places. At one point, it returned back to Princeton Hospital, then it went to the Muter Museum in Philadelphia. It moved around after that. And one good thing that came from my story, besides um, making me a celebrity for about 24 hours, uh, was <laughs> that some scientific research actually was done. People heard about my story. It got picked up by some scientific journals, and they wound up doing some research, some of the best brain people, to learn some things about what might be different about that brain. Nothing conclusive, but they found some interesting things. That was a nice outcome from that. We're going to have to have a spinoff episode just about Einstein's brain, I think. <laughs> All the famous brains that, we've, <laughs> that we have discussed on Ivy League murders. It's been a recurring theme. So back to you, Penn's Ira Einhorn. Usually on Ivy League murders, we give a little background on the universities in question, Stephen. So can you sort of do our heavy lifting a little bit and no. tell us a little bit about you, Penn, to sure, set the scene? Yeah. Or at that time, and maybe, at, you know. At that time and sort of how Ira Einhorn fit into the UPenn scene, that would be. I'm from Philadelphia. Maybe a little about, you know, I know you're from the same neighborhood as Ira Einhorn. Yeah, yeah, yeah roughly, you know, the sort of adjoining neighborhoods. But Ira is 10 years older than me. He went to the same high school I did, but obviously he was gone by then. And when he was at Penn, it was probably a few years before I went to college, I wound up going to Temple, which is the other big college in Philadelphia, not an Ivy League school, more of a working class school where it was mainly commuters. And I commuted from home my first two years. And Penn was an Ivy League school for sure, but because it's a you know, an, an, an urban school, has a great business school, but for some, it doesn't have the cachet of Harvard or Yale, you know, or even Cornell. People don't immediately flash Ivy League when they think of Penn, at least not in Philadelphia, though it is sort of the most prestigious college institution in Philadelphia. And it was a kind of school that someone from my neighborhood, a working class Jewish neighborhood where the parents all aspired to have their kids go to college. A really bright kid from that neighborhood could go to Penn, and that would be the Ivy League school that you would wind up going to. It was local, so that would be a way for someone to move up the ladder. I wasn't interested in moving up a conventional ladder, but he certainly partook of the intellectual activities at Penn. It was a great jumping off point for him because, I mean, he was super bright and highly educated. He read several books a day almost. And he dazzled some of his professors there at Penn. He wasn't a hard worker necessarily. He pursued what interested him rather than assignments, but he connected, and we could talk about this, with one of the prominent professors in the English department, became his protege for a while, and ultimately that turned bad. And he became a figure in the Penn community. He lived in a neighborhood adjoining Penn called Palatin Village, which was sort of where the some of the more lefty students would wind up living. It was a kind of a rundown neighborhood, but it had that blend of academia that came from Penn and Drexel, which was also nearby. Uh, you know, it's where the engineering students went, even closer to Palatin. So Ira became closely associated with Penn, though he never did stick in to get his graduate degree there. So you also in the book, you really do go specifically into Ira's background. You bring up his mother quite a bit, B. Einhorn. Ira Einhorn really excelled pretty early. He was a, not a prodigy exactly, but he, and he was a football player. 
he was probably what he would refer to as a straight before the 60s and the 70s happened. He was a football player, but he wasn't your typical jock. He was a voracious reader. He was familiar with like the beats and the stuff that was going on in, in that sense. He always felt that he knew more than his professors and he would lure it over his readings in class. Yeah, as we said, he got into Penn and immediately distinguished himself through the breadth of his reading. One thing he did not do all that well, and this was a frustration for him, is he wasn't a great writer. And that was a handicap because he was full of ideas, but never could transmit them in a felicitous fashion. And indeed, as his career, if you want to call it that, progressed, he became very good at finding other people's ideas and circulating them. And his own ideas were just kind of loony or like parroted those of others, like Marshall McLuhan, who he was a big believer of. And the one book that Ira published was sort of a, a second-rate McLuhan kind of book that he came up with. And he named it after its Library of Congress number. And, <laughs> and there was all these, you know, kind of, have you ever seen McLuhan's popular book, The Meeting of Massage? It looked a lot like that, though not as deep. But he did have a genius for, I think, attracting people and getting people together. And he almost has sort of a guru kind of magnetism. So do you think that's just who he was or... And that especially worked with women, it seems like. Yeah, well, he was an incredibly social person, and he was unbelievably charming. He charmed not only some of his professors, and but he charmed the people around him. You, you would meet him, and you'd be swept into his intellectual excitement. He would tell you about stuff that you hadn't heard about and point you to papers, scientific papers or books that you hadn't heard of. There was an editor at Doubleday that hired him basically as a consultant just to find really interesting things. Yeah. Behind the scenes of the cutting edge of physics at the time, he was promoting what this idea of how quantum physics affected different things. And, you and, know, and this was way before the scientific community really took that stuff seriously. Yeah, it was sort of a fringy thing, the yeah. way some people were looking at quantum physics and picking up on some scientific papers that traditional physicists thought were out there. But now it became really the core of uh, physics, it became conventional. A few years ago, someone wrote a book about how the hippies saved physics. And yeah. you know, there was a big chapter about Ira because he was the their promo man, in a sense. Into like UFOs and psychic abilities to All stuff like that. manipulate. Some of the stuff know. about the CIA doing mind control. He was at the center of that. He was a big promoter of Yuri Geller, the guy who bended spoons. Right. Um, the Israeli guy, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah yep. It was interesting. You mentioned women, though he did recognize some smart women. Generally, he was unbelievably a sexual predator, I guess you'd have to say. He didn't you know, normally physically attack women, but he would seduce them. And a lot of times, you know, the women would see through him. And what I found time and again in my research is I would meet someone, a couple who knew Ira. And typically, Ira would almost have the romance with the male in the couple. It would be an intellectual romance. And he would seduce the male of the couple with his ideas. And, and he was a fun guy to be around. He would laugh. Sometimes he would even laugh at himself. But the woman in the couple would despise him because he would just say, no, you have another cup of tea, please? Thank you. And he'd be very dismissive of the woman there. And they, and they smelled that he really didn't 
see women as equals generally. It was probably a bit of like the feminist movement meets his misogyny, and they they probably did not like uh, it. Yeah. And I have I to say, one one theme in the book was how this double standard, as you were, was something that wasn't only Ira. This was something that you would find in the counterculture. You know, Ira was the icon of the counterculture in Philadelphia. And I have to say that after he was arrested, a lot of people looked back and realized what they were tolerating in Ira and realized it shouldn't have been tolerated was something that existed in a wider sense among the countercultures, particularly in some of the prominent people there. I think that's you, interesting. You do such a good job in your book to of weaving through and I think you kind of address it here. I think Ira Ironhorn was a very complicated character and he had all of these kind of contradictions. I think some of his reading was way ahead of its time, but I think a lot of it's kind of 70s fluff, frankly. He's a sort of contradictory character and you paint that very well in, in your book. Thank you. The fascinating thing is that, you know, he was into some stuff super early. One thing he was into really early was computer conferencing. He taught Alvin Toffler, the famous author of Future Shock, how to do computer conferencing. Wow. I had an amazing dinner while I was researching it. Researching the book was amazing because you would come across such interesting people with Alvin and Heidi Toffler. Heidi was his often uncredited co-author. We went up to this place they eat in the Upper East Side all the time and, and and told me how they were somewhat seduced by Ira, which was an impressive thing to say. And, you know, a lot of new agey stuff he was into. He knew the actor uh, Ellen Burstyn. I had a meal with her where she was talking about Ira and the things they had in common. And, you know, she didn't let him in too closely. Just the really interesting people, the physicist uh, Heinz Pagels. And it was interesting to me because at that time in the 80s, the mid 80s, when I was researching the book, I was kind of getting into science and technology myself as a subject in my writing. And some of the people who I met in that world were people who had known Ira. And we had some really interesting conversations about that. Did I hear or read, and I'm sorry, Laura, mm -hmm. that you actually met Ira Einhorn at one point? When I first started my career in journalism, I was in graduate school and I left and went back to my hometown and was writing for the weekly paper, the underground paper. And during that time, you would see Ira around town. And one night I was eating at a diner. I had like covered a Phillies game for the newspaper. And it was a kind of near our old neighborhood. And Ira was there with some friends and I knew who he was and sort of joined the conversation. And we talked for a couple hours in that group and you know, you'd see him around town. But uh, one conversation I did not have with him was the one I wanted, but while I was doing the book, he was on the lamb. And I always thought there was a chance that he would contact me and say, yeah, I want to tell you my side of the story. I would manage to get tapes that he made where he did try to present his side of the story so that you get his voice in the book, but he never contacted me. He always correctly, I think, saw me as a threat to his freedom. And in, indeed, when the book came out, the police used some of the information in it to eventually capture him. Some of our listeners may not be as familiar with the book. So, yeah, yeah, we just, haven't mentioned Holly yet. And we yeah, really I was going to say, let's, let's talk about Holly. And I know you got to know Holly's family really well. And so, Holly grew up in Texas. Yes, Holly Maddox. The, yes, the, Holly the, Maddox. And she grew up in Texas. Of, um, Ira Einhorn. And it was amazing to research her life. She was, in a sense, when she grew up, kind of a golden girl. She grew up in Tyler, Texas, which is this little city in East Texas. 
her interesting background. Her father was sort of a hard scrabble guy from Texas and served in the military and super patriotic, super right wing. And her mother, who he met, I think, overseas when he was fighting in the war, came from like a really wealthy family in Minnesota. They ran a big company, her family. And Holly's grandmother was on the board of Bryn Mawr, which she eventually attended. And so it was a really interesting and, in a sense, troubled family underneath the surface because the mother came from a really super cultured background. And then it, I think it was a shock for her to go to Texas. I don't even think they had air conditioning back then when they first moved there in the late 40s, maybe. And she tried to raise her kids to be sort of a step above the culture in Tyler. Though Holly, even though she was this beautiful young woman, she could do anything she wanted. One day felt herself kind of an artist. She drew beautiful sketches. She did really well in school. One day she said, well, I'm going to try out for cheerleader, which was unlike the Holly Maddox that people knew because people were, were almost afraid to approach her. She seemed so special, but she made cheerleader, which was like royalty in Tyler, Texas in the early 19s. <laughs> and she disappointed her father by going to Bryn Mawr. He wanted her to go to Texas, A&M, or, or at worst, UT. But she lost her moorings there during the 60s. She graduated, but was kind of a drifter when she went to La Terrasse, which is this kind of nice French restaurant, kind of earthy, not a super fancy one, but uh, good food on the Penn campus one day in the early 1970s. And Ira spotted her and made a beeline for her. And that began a troubled relationship that ended when basically he cracked her skull open when she was in the process of leaving him in 1977. You know, a continuing theme we have on Ivy League murders, and we see this time and time again, is really, really smart people. And we think that often they think they're immune to the normal rules of life. And then they fall to the same things that everyone else does. Jealousy, anger, you know, greed, greed, greed lust, greed, you, lust know. you know, no matter what their intellectual capabilities are. And we see it time and time again, even oftentimes the more intellectual, they often make the worst criminal. You bring that up in the book too, that he almost has this sort of Nietzschean, I'm above this all. So we see that a lot with our cases. Let's back up a little bit, guys. Can we talk a little bit about Ira and Holly's relationship? Because it was an interesting relationship because I think they were very much in love when they first met. And then it just becomes very tumultuous. It becomes violent. Holly, she's smart in her own right. She's also fiercely independent. But sort of talk us through what happens in their relationship that makes it go so toxic. Her story is heartbreaking, as you mentioned. She's super intelligent, first in her class. And, and then Tyler went to Bryn Mawr, danced. She was a wonderful dancer. But like a lot of women, she, around that time, she was sort of eclipsed by some of the men in her life. She had a self-confidence issue. And she took the heart when people belittled her, I guess, and just had a tough time finding her way during that period. 
and Ira played her in, in a sense. They did have this attraction for e- each other. And when she would try to pull away, he would kind of like bring her back in. And he was, he fits your profile to a T. He felt so self-entitled. He felt entitled to sleep with anyone he wanted to sleep with and said they should have an open relationship. What's the matter, Holly? We should be free. But when she exercised that, he would become furious. In general, he felt that the rules didn't apply to him. And when you heard him talk, can I have tapes of his lectures? And actually, I had unbelievable access to their inner lives because I actually read both their diaries, which I was able to get hold of and was able to see internally how Holly was to grapple with the things in her life. And Ira would report this woman slept with her or or, what's the matter with Holly and trying to get her to do this. And it was tough. And, And the friends around them would feel bad for Holly. They would want her to assert herself more. And then in the latter stages of the relationship, Ira actually was violent with her. And she told some friends that uh, he would hit her. And she tried to get away and eventually did break away. And that's when Ira got her to come back to the apartment. She was never seen again after he called her back, threatening to throw her clothes out in the street. She goes missing. And it it seems... I mean, maybe it was the times too. Sarah and I were discussing how today it seems like there would be more of an urgency in looking for her, but it took so long, really, <laughs> and a private investigator, really, for, for them to get going. And it doesn't seem like the people yeah. around Ira really questioned Right, right because the, the Maddox family knew something was wrong. She didn't contact them right. for Thanksgiving. She disappears, quote unquote, September 10th of 77. She doesn't contact her family for Thanksgiving or there's a birthday, someone's birthday in there or Christmas. They knew this was highly unusual. It sort of seemed to Laura and I that it was a sign of the times. If a young woman disappeared now, And they would immediately go to the boyfriend and search his house. But this was free spirit, hippie stuff. Maybe she's at an ashram. Holly's just, she's away, whatever. Much more transient. People saw her as this wayfish presence. Oh, she could be anywhere. And, And Ira lied about it. He said, you know, she told me that she was going to go away and this will find herself. And he lied to her parents. He said she called and said she's okay. And partly, Ira had this uh, reputation. Even though he was a hippie, he was the avatar of LSD in Philadelphia, he had gotten these connections with the business community. During the 60s, he was the person the police would go to to sort of cool off times of tension. And he would like broker peace between protesters and and the police. And Philadelphia had this very notorious guy in charge of civil order in the police department who busted people for drugs routinely. And he was like the enemy of the hippie community, but he was friends with Ira. And he went to visit Ira and he said, you know, their parents are complaining about that. And he and he would, he reassured the guy, listen, you know, I know she's okay. Don't worry about it. It was up to the parents, really, to hire a private detective, a former FBI guy who subcontracted the search to another guy, former FBI guy. And I follow that detective story. I had all the reports as you know, we interviewed all the people they interviewed as the evidence piled up that something had gone wrong. And one grisly detail is that Ira had this outdoor closet and the people who live below it, it was indoors for them where the closet was. They would get see this horrible leak. They came through in this terrible smell and they complained to the landlord. He went to Ira and he said, maybe it's just a dead animal, but he wouldn't let them look into his closet. It's extraordinary that they would not go and search his place. You know, He called them off and, and for part of it, we're back to the Ivy League now. He went to Harvard. He was a fellow at the Kennedy yes. School of Government. 
while Holly was in his closet in a trunk, he was in Cambridge in the fall of what was it by then, 1978? Well, where we uh, both were at the time. <laughs> He had a, a free university class, evenings with Ira Einhorn. He would sit in there. You know, the national security people would come to the Kennedy School and he would talk to them. When the conversations got heated, Ira cooled people down. The people there loved him. And of course, he used the Harvard stationery to contact people. People felt he was a Harvard professor. So he was advancing his own life, his own career doing that. But I talked to a number of people who were fellows that year, and they thought he was a lovely guy. Holly's family did not think he was a lovely guy. Talk a little bit about that culture clash, you know, basically of uh, super conservative parents and the hippie guru that comes for... uh, whatever it was, thank you. You couldn't imagine a worse nightmare boyfriend to bring home. (laughs) You you have to imagine the, the, the father was ultra conservative. And I have to say, he did have a Nazi flag hanging in in the den. Just a war souvenir, you understand. So, I mean, he was nice. I actually stayed in that, that house while I was doing that. And I think they took the Nazi flag down and (laughs) it's out of, you know, deference to me. But he, you bring home this guy, Holly says, you'll really like him, you'll really like him. And he went out of his way to make them hate him even more as a way to try to drive a wedge between Holly and right. her. Isolate uh, her more. Yeah, he, at one point he called her over and said, Holly, brush my hair. He had long hair. Yeah. And you, you know, how appalling to see, you know, your daughter, this you know, like amazing young woman be sort of like a slave to this big, hairy, smelly guy. You know, Ira had notorious body odor. And he, he took baths a lot, right? But I'd read yeah. in your book that he would never wash his clothes. So yeah, he had yeah. this like yeah, yeah. Ira Pong. It was not a successful visit. And, you know, uh, so, and it was part of this mind game he played during their relationship, established that he could do what he wanted and she was up to him and they would break up and get back together again. And and Holly, the thing she said, literally when she determined to leave him and he threatened to throw her clothes out in the street and she felt that she'll go and to quote, get him off the wall. She said to the guy she had started seeing, and she said, I don't know why this guy is able to press my buttons like this. And it was just sad. So she goes back to get her things and he kills her at that yeah. point. Yeah. He right. thinks he'll get her back together. They go out with another couple. They see Star Wars, right? You know? Um, wow. And the next day he kills her. And then I found out and this was something the police hadn't realized because I was able to decode his diary. Sometimes he would say things in code and he talked about having these girls over and he would see sometime. And I figured out who they were by cracking the code. And it turned out he asked them, this is the day after Holly was there and, and disappeared. He asked them to help dispose of a big trunk in his apartment. He wanted him to dump into the Schuylkill River. And these young women like, looked at each other and saying, well, we can't fit in a car. They, they got a really bad feeling about that. And fortunately, the police read my book and one of them testified eventually at the trial against them. So why do you think that he left it there? I mean, it's so uh, nonsensical almost that he left the trunk there in his closet. Not only did other people think of him as nonviolent, but he had this image of himself as a person who wouldn't do that. And referencing your observation before about these people who think they're they're smart, they're above it, but they're really garden variety lowlifes. It was the classic story of a guy who couldn't handle a woman leaving him. 
Right. You see that it, it is so common and so pedestrian and so disgusting. So for all his highfalutin intelligence, sure. he was no better than any low life that beats on his wife or girlfriend and then can't stand it when they up and leave him. And if I can't have you, no one can. That was basically it. And I don't think it was a sort of a premeditated thing. I think if maybe if I'd gotten past that weekend, nothing would have happened there. But whatever it was, there were no eyewitnesses, but unbelievable circumstantial evidence. He couldn't handle it and killed her. And I think at that point, he couldn't square that with who he was. He couldn't square that he was a killer. So he literally put the thing in the closet, but he couldn't. And then for the next few months, he took a lot of ketamine, which is a drug that disassociates yourself from what it is. And eventually he was sort of intellectualized the whole thing, I think. I read the book and even in your sort of journal entries about him being depressed about Holly, it's as if she left him rather than the reality of He he put her in the closet. I think you're right. I think he had an absolute schism with reality. And I think he believed the Ira story. You're totally right. And I think that he went off the rails for a few months. He did things that his friends couldn't understand. They said, what's going on? There was one person who he was going to go to England and was the wealthy benefactor with one of his gurus and he was uh, promoting and he demanded, they sent him business class, he made those crazy demands and he showed up and left and he was acting irrationally and it took him a while. A few months later, he actually wrote in his diary, he said, I think I'm over this now. He, the turmoil, he managed to just like compress it down and, and just go on. And I think then at that point, dealing with that body in his closet was something that he just pretended it wasn't there. And indeed wasn't disturbed until that investigation that the detectives made got to the police who picked it up. There's one detective in particular and Saul found it credible, eventually got a warrant to search his place and open the closet. And the guy said, well, do you have the lock? There's a lock one. He said, do you have a key to this lock? Even though it was like hanging there. He said, no, I don't think so. You know, you have to break it. And we broke open the lock, open the trunk. And there is the mummified body of Holly Maddox with crushed newspapers in there with the date of her disappearance, Philadelphia Inquirer, the day she disappeared, right? He said, you found what you found. Right. Yeah, this is where I get really it amazes me next that he gets Arlen Specter as an attorney. Can I just back up just though a tiny bit? I just sort of thought of this, that in a way, his control of having Holly leave him, she never left him. She was there. He still had a picture of her as a young girl, big picture of her in his bathroom. Right. And in some funny way, I think that may have played into his psychology as well, as crazy as it is he still had control over her leaving because she never left. There might have been some of that in there. But he was, after he was arrested, he said, I was framed by the CIA or the KGB. It was crazy. But people believed him. Maybe not so much about the KGB. He would look at them and he had these piercing blue eyes. And he would say, you know me. You think I killed her? Generally, his friend said, yeah, I, 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 yeah, you're right. I, I, I guess I kind of believe you. And they really didn't know all the evidence. And what they really didn't know is something, you know, because that was a question that I grappled with. How can a guy like that like murder a young woman? He was twice her size. I mean, it, it, it really was a brutal act. And one that seemed out of character for him. But as I researched his life more, I discovered that he had almost murdered two women before that, 
right. in almost and, identical circumstances. That And that is Judy. Yeah, I mean, I gave them pseudonyms in the book, and one of them died a few years ago, and her daughter wrote about this. They, they were unaware about this. So one of them in the early 60s was a girl he met, and she went to Bennington. They spent the summer together, and she trying to leave him, and he choked her and, and left her for dead. And then another one in, at Penn, he hit her with a Coke bottle. Which yes, wanted, and he and wrote about it, yeah. And he wrote about it in his diary. Yeah. <laughs> he wrote a poem about it. And they read that poem at his trial. Again, the, the police like weren't aware of. They never went through all those diaries and, and learned about this. I, I felt like almost like I was the, the lone person pursuing this, the Javert. Good for you. They get this one guy in the DA's office in Philadelphia interested in the case, and he was the person who just didn't give up on it and wound up capturing him after Ira had been on the lam for 16 years. Is that, that's deep Benedetto, is it? The Benedetto, okay. yeah. So can we just um, go back to when he's, so he's arrested and he gets this really high profile attorney and- Arlen Spector. And he is given this extremely low bail. Right, all the prominent people testify. And the bail was put up by a right. woman named Barbara Bronfman. Right. An heiress um, who will come to, come to play later. And uh, this is where I get really amazed. And why do you think the bail was set so low? The judge was just blown away by all the people that testified. It, you know, what an extraordinary person this was. One of the top executives of Bell of Pennsylvania, the phone company, testified on his behalf. One of the most respected clergymen in Philadelphia, just one after another. Uh-huh. The judge even said, I've never seen such a prominent list of people testify to someone's character like this. But he had a woman's body in a trunk for 18 months. In on his closet. <laughs> yeah, like what? You know, that's a pretty good point. And one does seem that he needed more. There's a $40,000 bail of which 4000 had to be put up in cash. And it was put up by uh, Bronfman. Yeah. This is something we, we really are fascinated with. And we've seen this, you know, we, we saw this a little with Jeffrey McDonald. We've seen this with other these hyper charismatic criminals. And we see that they attract these kind of wealthy people to support and finance them. Yeah. And it's a really odd dynamic that we have seen before. And so for our listeners who aren't familiar with the story, Ira Einhorn flees. He flees the country. He does not show up for court because he basically knows that he's going to be convicted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He feels that, oh, this the DA, there was a really tough DA at the, the, the time, uh, our prosecutor, who he felt had it in for him. She was a female, by the way. Barbara, yeah. yeah. Barbara Christie, yeah. yeah. Then later the DA of Philadelphia, Lynn Abraham, was wound up prosecuting him. About a year after he was arrested, during which time he traveled all around the United States. He went to San Francisco. He was at Esalen. He met this young woman at Esalen. Then back in Philadelphia, he met another young woman and he fled with her. He was gone. And first went to Ireland and attracted you know, peregrinations there and, and then disappeared. And he was a fugitive when I was writing the book. And so the listeners know, and how is he financing all of this? Well, the people would give him money. Bronfman, Peter Gabriel. This amazes me. And that, okay, this, this amazed me that Peter Gabriel actually supported him and gave him money. Later, when some of these people read my book, they changed their minds and notably Bronfman read my book and said, oh my God, he really is guilty and helped the police with some information. Part of the investigation too was this guy, Pierce, right? Who was a local Philly PI. Right. And he did a lot of the legwork during those 18 months that Holly had gone missing. Can you speak to his investigation a little bit? 
he was an incredibly straight guy and he immerses himself in the kind of counterculture or new agey kind of characters of Iron Holly's existence. It's a funny cast of characters in a sense. I mean, you know, some of them are kind of comical people. I was going to sub that apartment to Holly and, you know, some less comical figures like the woman who Holly knew, one of her friends, who she told that Ira had beaten her, and the boyfriend who Holly, the new boyfriend that Holly had met, and the police had first looked at him. And his noose tightened as he learned more about them and about Ira. Meanwhile, Ira was busy organizing a big environmental conference and did not have time to talk to him. And mm-hmm. you think, yeah, that's right. Yeah. You think so- that he would want to know what happened to the love of his life who sort of walked off and said, oh, I'm off Ira, you know, and no one ever heard from her again, but no. And so the report that he made, which of course I had a copy of, and of course spoke to him was unbelievable. You read it and it's like a detective novel in its own right, where the conclusion becomes inescapable. And when he dropped that on the Philadelphia police at that point, they could not ignore it. Mm -hmm. And of course they had to repeat the research this guy, Mike Chitwood, who was another notorious Philadelphia law enforcement guy, was known for just being really tough on protesters and, and druggies. He, kind of the dirty Harry of Philadelphia, did his own, he backed it up and verified it and was the person who went and did the search and found the body there. It was a scene that he reenacted for endless indicated crime shows. <laughs> I became a connoisseur of the different and a guest on many of them, the, the inside edition and yeah, blah, 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 sure. all, the, all the things like that. Every host of that, America's Most Wanted, they'd always reenact that scene and there would be a hand coming out of the Oh, right, right. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. And, and, and time and again, and of course, the apex of that was in the TV movie made based on the Unicorn Secret. Sure. Yes, um, with Naomi Watts. and Naomi uh, Watts. We've put that yeah. up on our Facebook in our Facebook group, encouraged everyone to watch. I, it. I thought it was pretty good. Yeah, I have to it say, wasn't bad. it was. It was weird for me because I had two screenwriters. One, the first, they threw out the screenplay, and they got a really good playwright named Bruce Graham to do the teleplay. It was a two-night miniseries, and it was strange because some of the stuff came straight out of my book, right? You know, like quotes that I came from people I interviewed or dialogue that I was able to reconstruct literally in the mouth of these characters. And then other times just totally made up stuff, right? You know, <laughs> so it, was, it was very strange to watch. What an honor to have your... I was busy with my own stuff at the time. Um, and they filmed it in Toronto. And I could have gone, my own expense, of course, to Toronto. They said, you can come and watch the, some of the filming. And I said, no, I'm the busiest in that. And, you know... And at one point, they're saying, maybe I could say a line as a reporter, but then that wasn't going to happen. So I didn't go. I'm sorry, I didn't go. That, that was gonna... <laughs> the guy who played Fred Maddox was Tom Skerritt. Yes. Well, yeah, they did a great Yeah. So some years later, a friend of mine in Seattle who got wealthy in tech, had a 50th birthday party for himself where it was a great party. He had Elvis Costello perform, right? Oh, my and God. <laughs> for 200 people, right? You can imagine. Wow. You know, just playing, reenacting the tour where he did the big wheel to see what shows it was. And Tom Skerritt was there for some reason. So I was talking to Tom and his wife, and I said, hey, you were, you know, a good Fred Maddox in that Thing. And he said, what? What are you talking about? He didn't remember. His wife had to remind him. Oh oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> well, it made research a lot more fun when we got to have it watch a movie. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. In school, when there's like a, a movie of the Shakespeare play. Exactly, exactly. So it took you three years to write this book, and you published it in 88, when Ira Einhorn was still on the lam. Correct. Uh, so eventually he gets apprehended in France. So can you tell us a little bit about the expedition? Yeah, sure. They find him because of some clues, uh, part Bronfman and partly in my book. When I was tracking his path in Ireland, I learned of some people he was contacting with. One was a guy named Eugene Mallon. And he wound up taking that guy's name. And he met a woman in Sweden and married her. And they wound up, she had some money. They wound up living in this bucolic town in southern France called Champagne-Mouton. And they lived in a converted old mill. You know, you would go into the town. It sounds a little bit better than Rikers, I have to say, or wherever <laughs> else he would have yeah, been. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. Slightly better. Yeah. And he had a driver's license by that name. And when somehow this came up, they were searching for different things. The Benedetto unearthed this, and he found the guy's living there in France. And they had someone check it out outside, and they, they found that there he was. And they thought, you know, great, we'll arrest him and bring him back. But they had a lot of difficulty extraditing him from France. During his absence, they had tried him in absentia, which they were able to do because his trial had been scheduled when he fled. And in that case, your trial, in essence, had begun. And so you can kind of continue it. But France said, no, 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 cannot do. And, (laughs) And his lawyer had the fiction there was a death penalty and France didn't have the death penalty, wouldn't extradite you. There was a death penalty in Pennsylvania, but it was enacted after his murder. So he couldn't possibly have faced that. But but at the first hearing, and I was working for Newsweek then, and Newsweek sent me to France for the hearing there. And I was in the room when they denied extradition. And we went out, my translator, who actually now became, she was an intern at the Paris office, and she became quite a prominent journalist herself, uh, Sarah Ellison, and knocked on the door, and they weren't very welcoming to us. I'm Um, sure. And then the U.S. actually, Pennsylvania actually passed a law saying that if you are uh, arrested overseas and tried in absentia, you are entitled to another trial. You can ask for another trial if that's what it takes to extradite you. So with that, a year later, I came back to France when the ruling went against Ira and he finally got shipped back. He, you know, the Clinton administration got involved in it and was tried. I didn't go to the trial itself because Ira was so furious. I had his diaries. He wanted to make that an issue. Yeah. So I didn't show up until the jury had been impaneled. And then I came back and I was in the courtroom when the jury came back, declared him guilty. It didn't take him long. And the judge gave the scathing, scathing speech to him about what a low life he was. And you think you're better than everyone else, but you're not. And sentenced him to life without parole. And it was life without parole. He died just a few months ago. I'm curious because we actually just did a case on a a Yale graduate, William Bradford Bishop, who's been missing for 50 years. And I wonder if you hadn't written the book, do you think that he would have just lived out his life in France? Um, Chance, you know, who knows? um, Because, you know, our other fugitive really didn't get nobody, you know, it's almost been a lost case. I I think the people who were supporting him wouldn't have turned on him because no one was really gave them that evidence. Mm-hmm. It not only was the circumstantial evidence of the murder 
So unbelievably conclusive. She died on that date. There she's in the trunk of the apartment with newspapers on that date. You can't have evidence stronger than that, short of an eyewitness, but so is stronger. The upper heart of the case is what made them override that, the idea that he would never do a thing like that, where the personality side of it was the other case that I brought the conclusion that actually he was the kind of person that would do right. that. He did it before. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't out of character. It was his character. And he sort of floats this theory around that it was the CIA that planted the body because he knew stuff that they didn't want revealed. And do you think people bought that line or do you think it was? Maybe they thought, it could be. It could be. Yeah. Let's face it. I mean, the CIA has done some crazy stuff. But but what happened was, and I talked to people in national security, and basically their reason was, why go after him? I mean, you know, he was not a threat to the CIA. Yeah, in his own mind, he was. But, you know, right. and, and if you're going to go after him, it's a, it's a sort of a, you know, like a roundabout way to do it, right? To kill the girlfriend and leave her in a trunk in an apartment to be found two years later. I mean, what? I mean, that that is not Oakham's razor would be that if the yeah. CIA or, or KGB wanted him out of the way, that was not the way to do it. Right. Yeah. Well, it shows people believe what they want to believe. Frequently. Yeah. And, and it goes to, we have a number of people who are Ivy Leaguers who might be brilliant at what they, and I think part of Einhorn, I want to say, I think it was probably like 50-50 brilliance and 50 BS that made mm -hmm. up Einhorn, but they might be brilliant at what they do, but they're terrible criminals. You know, and this is like a perfect example of if you don't want to get caught, don't. Yeah, not them. not the perfect crime. No, not the, not <laughs> yeah. the per, not the perfect crime. Yeah, we've exactly. seen that again and yeah, again. There is yeah. that body business, right? You know. Right, right. Yes, yeah. details. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he was like a really smart guy, and he was a great discoverer of ideas. But when it came to a criminal, he was like on the Fargo level. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. We see that a lot on Ivy League murders. Intellectual ability does not equate uh, yeah. street street smarts. Yeah, exactly. We, we have a different part of the brain, <laughs> yes. probably. You know, um, and it also does doesn't doesn't make you immune either so that's right so you i take it you don't write true crime anymore which breaks <laughs> my heart i you know my wife was really one of the best true crime writers in the in the country at that time during yeah, we're well aware yeah, we're, we're, we're we're a little obsessed with her yeah and you know, um, uh this was a story i took on and you know in the early 80s I came across this story about technology and, you know, computer hackers and Apple and all this other kind of stuff I was, you know, came across before it was mainstream stuff. And I was getting more and more into that world. This story was one that always just fascinated me because I was from Philadelphia. I grew up in the 60s and it had that resonance to me. And at the time, I wasn't sure whether I would write just about technology. And I found it incredibly depressing to work on this book. Uh, unbelievable. You know, you're, you know, spending time with Holly's family and it, it was, it was sad. And Ira had potential that he tossed away. I, 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 a lot of time. I just watched the thing about the Chicago seven, the, the Aaron Sorkin. Oh, right. movie. Oh, right. I spent a lot of time with Jerry Rubin, who was a friend of Ira's. Yep. And he, Jerry told me, he said, you know, I said to Ira, you know, Ira, what a great opportunity this is. You can stand up and say, a brilliant guy like me, like, was prone to this horrible jealousy. I'm standing up and owning this. You know, right. people should be like this. I should be, he said, you know, and if Ira had done that, I think he would have spent maybe like eight years in jail and yeah. passion and been done with it. 
But no, no. And, you know, I, I talked to Abby Hoffman, who was really unhappy that even he didn't, he wasn't that friendly with Ira. You know, Ira would be the host these counterculture people when they came to town. And right. this happened with Abby. Birthday stuff. Spend, right. yeah. spend, spend a day with Abby. And there was a great photograph that someone took of Ira and Abby smiling and laughing together. I have the picture, yeah. And, you know, and they would show that a lot after Ira got arrested. And it really bugged Abby. He's saying, that asshole, you know, I, I, I hardly knew him. But Jerry knew him pretty well. You know, he gave me a blurb for the book even and, um, and, and thought that he didn't believe Ira. You know, he, he, he saw through it, you know. Um, and, and we have that quote from Harvey. Is it Harvey Katz? Is that Harry Katz? He's a big figure in Philadelphia, this playboy who he literally opened the playboy club in Philadelphia. Whoa. I think his was it like his family invented the seamless silk stocking or something. He, he, had, he had a lot of money. And he and he, <laughs> and he was a buddy of Ira's. And yeah, you know, and he would be talking to Ira after Ira got arrested and came up and see him. You know, Ira, he said, Ira, you know, HJK1. And I said, what are you talking about? What is that? He said, HJK1. That's the, the license plate I want you to make for me <laughs> in prison. You know, Harry J. Katz won. He said, yeah, Ira, you're a big, fat, messy, smelly Jew. No, you, you killed this beautiful six of goddess. No one's going to believe you. <laughs> I you love that quote. That. Oh, man. Uh, that's great. I think you're right, though, if he had owned it. If he had mm-hmm. and and done a sort of a mea culpa, and probably he would have needed some therapy, some help, some to yeah. understand what motivated that. With that was one drugs, you know. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, he was too yeah, much yeah. of a narcissist. I think yeah. he was. Yeah, he couldn't bring himself to do that. No, yeah, he, he, no. Could not. he could not. He could not go through life with people pointing to him and saying, "You murdered that woman." I mean, can you imagine now if he? Even let's say he did that, got out of jail, managed to worm his way back into hippie physics and other kinds of stuff. I found this with other people, Stephen. I'm a private investigator and I've spoken to murderers throughout the years. And there is this disconnect between the event, the murder and the trial now. And it's as if the person separates himself as much as possible from the reality of what actually happened. And it's a very, and it's like, no, now we're in the trial prep phase and that's maybe that happened. Maybe it didn't, but there's this kind of funny, strange disconnect and an extreme example in the, in Iris case. I I talked to his French lawyer who who was fighting his extradition case. And And I said, do you really think he's innocent? And he, you know, gave me this Gaelic shrug, and, you know, and he said, well, you know, I've represented a lot of murderers and they don't believe it. They believe they're innocent even when they did it. And he said, yeah. I like Ira could be like that. But to finish that thought before, I mean, I remember the day I basically, there comes a day when you, and you're writing a book where you basically switch from researching to writing and your research might continue, but then you start writing. And I, the day that happened... I felt like a burden had been lifted for me. Wow. Wow. No longer was I collecting these stories that that I knew and only I knew, but and I was now getting it out. And my posture improved. I literally was sitting up straighter and walking straighter after that because the burden of having the story was being released for me. So I don't know how, so Therese, my wife, I, I don't know how she does it because to me, it was so depressing. And, and then I was on to this much more exciting and optimistic 
It's also now taking a dark edge too, but a story about technology, right? We're come around people like Steve Jobs and Bill Gates. And, and so that world was more satisfying to me. I'm in a lot of true crime book clubs and I'm a big true crime book fan. And you wrote an, an epic, you know, one of the great true crime books. I think people agree. Thank you. I mean, when whenever there's suggestions in true crime book clubs, it, your book always comes up as one of the top ones, you know, one of the classic must read. And it, we told anyone we're speaking to you, I, you know, true crime fans are just, you know, bowing their heads to oh, us. Oh, that, that's exactly nice. You know, and, and it's interesting because people do still read it. And, and literally like a month ago, right, it was released an audio for the first time. Yeah, I, I, I actually you you mentioned yeah. that and I got it on Audible, which I love. I mean, I've read the book many times and I have it have the book, but I loved listening to it on Audible. He's a really and good narrator. The guy he's the guy who uh, read good. the Google book. Excellent. Um, and we find a lot of our audience um, does listen to Audible. A lot of podcast people do listen to Audible. So we were really glad that we could we could do that and, and put your put the link on our group so people have the opportunity to listen on Audible and really get to really appreciate the, the full book. Because I think we're just giving them a glimpse of the story. But to really, our listeners really like to go deep. And, yeah. and really, really delve into the story. And, and that's what we're going to encourage everyone to do. It's a it's a fantastic book. I it mean, re- it really is. Oh, it's beyond. And I know we can't pull you back into the dark side, Stephen, but, you know, we would love you to write more true crime. But it's okay. <laughs> we'll let it we go. might try to charm your wife. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, it's interesting because she, for a number of years, she won one story after another and won the Pulitzer and... And then came back for the sort of like the you know, the Super Bowl of crime, which was OJ, right? Um, yes. You know, she had to be part of that. And, you know, and that was sort of like, after that, um, covering true crime really kind of changed. It you, did. You couldn't really, from the moment the story hit the headline, people were immediately like, Selling the movie rights, right? To their store side of the story, right? Yeah. And, and it was, and it became a different kind of thing. And you know, my wife actually moved to history, right? Where, you know, dead people don't ask for movie rights. <laughs> but true crime can be truly useful. And your book was truly useful in getting a criminal apprehended. That yeah. is an extraordinary, that's what. In serving justice, you know, that's for a family. True crime at their best, that's what they do. You know, I look at it, Michelle McNamara's book. Yeah, no, no, I, I, well, I uh, thank you. I mean, I, I, I'm that satisfying. And it's also satisfying to me to put to rest the question that that community had about, did he really kill her? Was it something else? I mean, you, I mean, this was very much up in the air. And to be honest, when I started the book, you know, it would have been pretty cool if I found there was a CIA plot, right? Oh, <laughs> definitely. Yeah. Well, I, mean, I was looking for that. I, 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 I'd I, worry a little bit for your safety there, Stephen. No, but, no, you know, I, mean, I mean, it was like, uh, I'm, I'm starting this journey. Whatever I find, I'm going to find. And what I found was conclusive proof of not only that he did it, that I was in character there. And it was a side that people didn't know. And what... I felt was also important was it really reflected something on those times and a blindness people had during the 60s that, you know, um, you know, the subtitle is Murder, Murder in the Age of Aquarius. Well, it's been such a pleasure having you. And we really thank want you. to you everybody. Readers and interviewers. Oh, thank you yes. so much. And uh, yeah, we could talk to you for hours, but I think we'll 
probably have to let you get yes. on with your day. <laughs> okay. well, well, thanks. Just, uh, thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening again. And as always, please stay safe and stay curious. I also wanted to announce that we are 22 episodes in on Ivy League Murders and we are finishing season one and our next episode, which is going to be a dazzler starts off our season two so please also hold on for an awesome trailer with some great music with our buddy sam mitchell sam has a podcast called autism rocks and rolls and sam with you truly autism does rock and roll so hold for the trailer and we love sam we love gina so here it goes he's not a doctor I have a question for y'all. So what do you think of the word when you think of the word autistic? Broken, dumb, creative, eccentric, fun, weird, annoying? To me, autism rocks and rolls. And ironically, that is the name of my podcast. I am autistic and my name is Sam Mitchell. I am not ashamed of who I am to every day. And I struggle, yes, every day. Every day is a bit of a challenge for me. But come on a journey with me. I will help you understand autism as I shift the puzzle pieces one step at a time. I started my podcast to remove the stigma off of autism. Listen, I am not broken. I'm a functioning member of society, with autism or not. I am determined to be successful. Let's unite, come together, and understand the challenges and beauty of the brain where I call autism. Listen to my podcast and see what you think. I hope it inspires you to help you understand the others with autism. Listen to it on your platform of choice. iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, Podbean, SoundCloud, and Stitcher, and and also, don't forget to keep on rocking and rolling, you all.